Suspense, which is heard on Thursday nights at this hour, is taking its customary summer holiday. Suspense returns to the air six weeks from now on Thursday, August 31st. Sometime, someone listening to this program is going to bring you to justice. Yes? Somebody knows. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents Somebody Knows, a program conceived in the public interest dedicated to aiding the forces of law and order in the solution of this nation's unsolved crimes. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to recreate for you tonight all the known facts in an actual unsolved murder. Somewhere, someone among you has had contact with the killer or killers. Someone whose identity need never be known has seen evidence or possesses information that can lead to the solution of this crime. In the public interest, the Columbia Broadcasting System offers $5,000 reward for evidence or information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer in this unsolved murder. We ask you then to please listen carefully, for you may be the one to win this reward. Somebody knows. It may be you. And now we open the files on one of this nation's unsolved murders. It's homicide file number 235-1950 of the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania Police Department. The unsolved murder of Joseph P. Bohannock. It's two hours and 20 minutes past midnight, Monday morning, April 10th, 1950. Red car number 13 of the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania Police Department cruises slowly along the almost deserted vicinity of Broad and Carpenter Streets in South Philadelphia. As the red car approaches the intersection of Broad and Carpenter, Patrolman Harry Bunting and Sergeant George Chester look toward the Atlantic Refining Company filling station on the northwest corner. It's well lighted, and the night manager is plainly visible within the office. He waves a cheerful hand in greeting. No trouble there tonight, Harry. Doesn't look like it. Uh, what's the time? Uh, 2.20. Well, we'll be around again in an hour. Yeah. Number 11 car. Number 11 car. That's not us. Disturbance in Broad and Fitzwater. Car 11, Broad and Fitzwater. Got it. It is now two hours and 30 minutes past midnight. Monday morning, April 10th, 1950. And within the office of the Atlantic Refining Company filling station on the northwest corner of Broad and Carpenter Streets in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. (laughs) 
It is now two hours and 35 minutes past midnight. Monday morning, April 10th, 1950. A 1949 Ford sedan drives south on Broad Street approaching Carpenter. John A. Pellegrino of Chalfont, Pennsylvania is at the wheel. He approaches the filling station at the corner, slows and pulls in, stopping beside the pumps. Hey, where is that guy anyway? Probably asleep in the office. Hey, is anyone... Good Lord. John Pellegrino runs out of the filling station office and into the street. The yellow cab is driving north on Broad Street. Hey, cab, stop! Hold it, hold it, will you? The police. I gotta get the police. Police, what's up? The filling station, the attendant. Looks like he's hurt pretty bad. We gotta get the police. Okay, mister. See what you can do around here. But I'll probably find a cop before you will. John Banks, the driver of the yellow cab, speeds northward on Broad Street. Near the intersection of Fitzwater Street, he sees police car number 11 in charge of patrolmen Stecker and Donnell. Hey, red car. Something wrong at the filling station at Broad and Carpenter. Guy's been hurt. Better get there fast. Okay, thanks. almost before it comes to a halt. He pushes aside the half-open door, enters the office, and stops. A man lies motionless on the floor beside a show window. In a pool of blood, his head toward the door. A bullet wound is plainly visible in one temple. The policeman bends down, feels for a pulse. Then... To the emergency car, Donald. He's been shot. This is car 11. Send emergency car to Broaden Carpenter. Hospital case, shooting. Car 11, send emergency car to Broaden Carpenter. In a matter of minutes, the police ambulance is off the scene. The wounded man removed and sped to the graduate hospital. There he's examined immediately by Dr. Sylvester. The doctor's report, recorded at 3 a.m. Dead on arrival. Removed to the morgue. Approximately at the same time that Dr. Sylvester is examining the body, a telephone rings in an office of the detective division on the first floor of Philadelphia's historic city hall. Homicide, Riccardi. Plate room, Riccardi. There's been a shooting at a gas station brought in Carpenter Street. Right. Brenner, sir. Come on, we've got work to do. Detective Sergeant Samuel Riccardi and Detective Eugene Brenner of the Homicide Division proceeded once to the scene of the shooting and the police investigation of the crime begins. Several officials of the Atlantic Refining Company also arrive at the filling station, and among them is Mr. Philip T. Hopley, supervisor of the company. Following information is given to Acting Detective Lieutenant Charles Brown of the 1st Division at the 15th Street and Snyder Avenue headquarters. His name was Bohannick, Lieutenant Joseph P. Bohannick. He's been with us, the Atlantic Refining Company, since October 1945. This past year, as night manager of the Broad and Carpenter Street Station. Mm-hmm. What else do you know about him, Mr. Hopley? Well, let's see. He's 38, married. Wife's name is Mary. Two children, girl 14, boy 7. What's happened at that station tonight, Lieutenant? Well, right now, we'd have to guess. Our file show that Mahanick was the complainant in an attempted robbery and hold up at that station on December 2nd in 49. 
And there was a successful attempt at robbery just 11 days ago. Yeah, yes, I know. Well, this might have been another robbery attempt. And if Volantic tried to put up a fight and was... Our men are all warned not to resist if any such attempts are made, Lieutenant. We most certainly don't want them to get hurt. Naturally not, Mr. Hopley, but I uh, thought... Of course, Joe did feel pretty grim about the last holdup, but I don't think he'd have done anything. Thought too much of his wife and kids. He'd been trying to get off night work because of them. Oh. He asked for transfer and for a day job upstate... Promise to give him one, too. Matter of fact, there's a vacancy going to open up in another week or two. Meanwhile, Detective Sergeant Samuel Riccardi completes his investigation at the filling station, and then proceeds to number one detective division to learn what information has been uncovered there. Joseph P. Bohannik, 2816 East Castor Avenue. He was the complainant in an attempted holdup at the same spot last December 2nd, Sam. Yeah, I see the two brothers apprehended as suspects released on bail December 13th. We sent out a pickup on them, just in case. Yeah. Well, I'll check back with you later, Lieutenant. What about your preliminary report, Sam? It'll hold for a couple of hours. Oh? Something more important to do? Somebody's got to tell the widow, don't they? A short while later, a police car pulls up before the neat, well-kept house at 2816 East Castor Avenue. Several men get out and walk reluctantly to the front door. They hesitate there a moment, uneasily. And then one of them stabs at the doorbell with a rough, angry gesture. Yes? What is it? We'd like to see Mrs. Mary Bohannock, please. I'm Mrs. Bohannock. Who are you? I'm Detective Sergeant Riccardi, Mrs. Bohannock, Homicide Division. I'd like Detective, to... Detective? The police? What do you want with... Joe, something's happened. What is it? What happened? Tell me, what's happened? There was some trouble at the filling station, Mrs. Bohannock. Your husband was shot. I'm Joe, afraid... shot? Oh, no. No, he couldn't have been. He... Where is he? I must get to him. Where is he? <coughs> you... You said Homicide Division. Then, and my Joe was... I'm sorry, Mrs. Bohannock. Joe was such a good man. Why did anyone want to kill my Joe? Joe was such a good man. Why did anyone want to kill my Joe? Why did anyone want to kill my Joe? <laughs> In just a moment, we'll continue with Homicide File Number 235-1950 of the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania Police Department, the unsolved murder of Joseph P. Bohannock. CBS invites you to hear another adventure in the far corners of the world with yours truly, Johnny Dollar, tonight. Starring Hollywood actor Edmund O'Brien, yours truly, Johnny Dollar, brings you the adventures of a top investigator for a large insurance company. For action, thrills, and adventure in the far places, listen to yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Starring Edmund O'Brien every Thursday on most of these same CBS stations. Now, back to Somebody Knows and a true case history of an actual murder. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we'll continue with the rest of the factual information concerning the unsolved murder of Joseph P. Bohannock. Remember, $5,000 reward will be paid for information leading to the arrest and conviction of his killer. And the name and identity of the person supplying that information need never be known.
During the day of Monday, April 10th, 1950, all the information then known by the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania Police Department is correlated and reported upon. Ballistics has this to say. Fatal bullets were 32 caliber automatic. They were fired from foreign, Belgian, smokeless cartridge cases. The automatic used had right-hand rifling. Coroner's Detective John Fenton made this report. An examination of the body of the deceased disclosed one bullet wound in the vicinity of the right temple, one bullet wound just to the left of the spine at the shoulder blade, <clears throat> uh, one at the shoulder joint, and one below the armpit to the rear. One eye was badly bruised. At the filling station, the remains of a sandwich, a piece of cake, and some milk are on the desk. A short folding ladder is overturned, and a man's cap is found beneath it. $25.72 in bills and changes scattered around. On the basis of this information, Sergeant Riccardi reconstructs the crime at number one detectives for acting Lieutenant Brown. The way I see it, Lieutenant, around 2.20 a.m., Bohannik was counting his receipts and entering records and ledger. Yeah. He was eating lunch at the same time. He waved to Chester and Bunning in red car 13, went back to his work. Mm -hmm. Then his killer killers came into the station, put up a fight for a while. That's when the ladder turned over and one of the killers lost his cap. Yeah. Uh -huh. Trying to break away. That's when they gave him one through the back. As he fell, they fired two more into his back and gave him a fourth bullet into the right temple and tore out of the place without picking up the money Bohannik had been counting. Well, it could be that way, Sam. But if it is, it doesn't look like any ordinary holdup. Well, that's what we figured. Brennister's over at the morgue now, checking with Fenton Bohannock's relatives. Maybe he'll come up with something. Okay, Sam. Keep in touch. Meanwhile, other detectives are conducting a search for possible witnesses to the killing. An intensive interrogation is made of truck drivers and employees of the Frankfurt Grocery Company at the southwest corner of Broad and Carpenter Streets, directly across from the filling station. Typical of the results is the statement of Vincent Bulgarino, receiver in the produce department. Yeah, sure. I was working at the time in the locker room. That's it there. Facing north right at the gas station. I didn't hear any shots. Didn't see anybody either. But I was busy working. Oh, I saw the red car drive up all right. That's all. I was busy working. By the afternoon of Monday, April 10th, 1950, two theories regarding the killing of Joseph P. Bohannock are advanced by the police. The first, as expressed by Acting Lieutenant Brown, There aren't many gas stations open after midnight in that section of South Philadelphia. Bohannock's was the only one to radius of many blocks. Made a natural target for a stick-up gang as witnessed the attempts on December 2nd, March 31st. It's quite possible he was shot while resisting a third attempt, either by the same gunman on a return visit or by other. The second theory is advanced at the city morgue, 13th and Wood Streets. Homicide detective Eugene Brenizer is accompanying Joseph Bohannock's widow and three brothers-in-law, Norman Franks, Charles Spuler, and Frank A. Mask. An official identification of the deceased is to be made. All right, let's look at him. No. No, I can't. I can't. Oh, no. I better look after Mary. Well, Mr. Spuler. Mr. Mask? It's him, all right. Yeah. Yeah, that's Joe, Detective Branson. Now, thanks for your trouble. Okay, put him away. Any ideas what happened to Joe? We were fairly that it might have been a grudge killing. A grudge killing? Yeah, but who'd have a grudge against Joe? We thought maybe one of you could tell us. 
didn't drink or play around. He was a quiet guy who liked to stay home with Mary and the kids. Hmm. Any money troubles? Money troubles? No. He made good pay, 67 a week in bonus. He owned his own home. You're backing up the wrong tree with that grudge idea you On April 15, 1950, Detective Sergeant Riccardi and Detectives Brenizer and McCann went to Reading, Pennsylvania. But Hammock had friends and acquaintances in Reading. Maybe we can learn from them if he was killed for revenge, a grudge, or some other reason. The detectives talked to Corporal Toy of the Pennsylvania State Troopers, who'd known Bohannock when he lived there. Nope. No leads there. They talked to Bohannock's sisters. No leads there. They talked to friends, acquaintances, people who worked with him there in the Berkshire Mills. No leads there. Meanwhile, detectives Robert McGarvey and Francis Kelly quietly working on another angle of the case. There's one clue that they're convinced will eventually crack the murder of Joseph Bohannock. The clue found under the ladder that was overturned during Bohannock's struggle with his killers. A man's faded green cap. The crime laboratory makes a thorough examination of the cap. Their report gives the police the first hint of a possible description of the killer. Our studies indicate that the cap was worn by a young white male who should have medium brown, straight hair. The cap is distinctive, unique in materials and workmanship. Philadelphia clothiers believe that it was of New York make. Detective Robert McGarvey leaves immediately for that city. Upon his return, he reports... I made the rounds of every cap manufacturer in New York City. Not one of them recognized the cap as his own make or the make of anybody else known to the trade. Detectives McGarvey and Kelly then begin making the rounds of Philadelphia cap manufacturers. At the end of two full weeks spent in visiting hundreds of places, they've come upon no leads. Their conclusion? The shop that made that cap was probably small and possibly out of business now. But if the manufacturer can be learned, we might trace that cap to the retailer who sold it, the man he sold it to, and the man who wore it early on the morning of April 10th. Then, on April 25th, 1950... What seems to be the first big break in the case occurs. At 5 o'clock that morning, motorcycle policemen Thomas Brooks and Harry Sladek are in the vicinity of Ridge Avenue in Oxford when a car roars past them. The policemen recognize the car as one reported stolen and take out after the speeding automobile. After a chase of several minutes, they succeed in curbing the car and then approach it with drawn guns. Five youths are inside. They put up no resistance to the arresting officers and are taken to 2nd Detective Division headquarters at 12th and Pine for interrogation. Okay, you decided to talk. Now let's get it straight. For In the 2nd Floor interrogation room, the number two detectives, Detective Lieutenant William Greenhall conducts the questioning. The five youths confess to a series of window-smashing burglaries, latest of which is the looting of the Crawford Clothes Store at 6th and South Streets earlier that very day. Then Lieutenant Greenhall makes a stand in the dark. What about filling stations, boys? Filling stations? Yes, like the one at Broad and Carpenter Streets, for instance. Okay, okay, we'll give you that, too. Sure, we tried to knock it over. Only we knocked over Barhannock instead. Be sure to get this down. All right, boys, start talking. Sure. We spotted the joint a couple of nights before. It looked like a pushover. But we wasn't taking no chance. We gave it the one for a couple of nights work. civilian stenographer takes down the proceedings, a full confession is given by three of the five youths. 
They tell how they planned the hold-up attempt carefully. They knew of the hourly police car checkups. They waited outside the station at 2 a.m. until Bunting and Chester in red car number 13 came by, waved, and pulled away. Then, while one of them remained outside, the two others entered the filling station office. Okay, this is a stick-up. Boy, Hannah jumped for the gun and the fight began. Then, when he tried to break away from them... Confessions to the murder of Joseph Bebo Hanek. Those confessions have been repudiated. They were based solely on the reading of newspaper accounts of the crime and not on fact. The typical attempt to get cheap publicity. Now, there's no actual evidence to connect these three men with the killing. The killer of Joseph Bebo Hanek is still unknown. Unknown? No. The killer of Joseph Bebo Hanek is not unknown. Somewhere, wherever this man is hiding, someone of you has seen him today, has spoken to him, knows where the gun is that he fired that night three months ago in a filling station at Broad and Carpenter Streets in Philadelphia. Know the killer who took the life of Joseph P. Bohannock is not a person who is unknown. Somebody knows. Now listen carefully, please. Listen, all of you, wherever you may be. We're going to give you a recapitulation of all the pertinent facts in the unsolved murder of Joseph P. Bohannock. Uh, better make note of them. And remember, by following the instructions we shall give you in a moment, you may be the one to earn a $5,000 reward. Now, here are the actual facts in the case. Joseph P. Bohannock, 38 years of age, night manager of a filling station at Broad and Carpenter Streets in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, was shot to death while working at his job. The date, Monday, April 10th, 1950. The time, approximately 2.30 in the morning. Only a tentative description of the suspected killer has been determined. A young white male who should have medium brown straight hair. The murder weapon is a 32 caliber automatic with right-hand rifling. The bullets were fired from smokeless cartridge cases made in Belgium. The only other clue is a man's cap found at the scene of the crime. The police department in Philadelphia feels certain that this cap can lead to the killer. They're vitally interested in learning the name of the manufacturer, the identity of anyone known to have worn a cap of its description. Now, here's that description. Listen carefully, please. The size of the cap is six and seven-eighths. When new, it was a Kelly Green cotton twill, but when found, was badly faded from the weather. The headpiece is sewn together from six sections instead of the usual three. The taping used to sew the sections is unusual. 50% cotton and 50% wool, black and white tweed. It has an adjustable eye shield that can be folded up against the cloth visor or pulled down for protection against glare. The cap was made on two types of sewing machines. One was a Singer, single needle number 24-7. The other, used to sew the taping, was a Singer, double needle number 24-36. And remember, this cap is the most important single clue, possibly the vital clue in the solution of this case. Ladies and gentlemen, if any of you possesses information, please don't send us guesses or hunches, but authentic information, 
that may have bearing on the unsolved murder of Joseph P. Bohannock, follow these instructions so that your name and identity need never be made known unless you wish. Now listen carefully. Write your information on a plain sheet of paper. Do not sign your name. Instead, sign it with six numbers, any arrangement of any six numbers. Then tear off a blank corner of that paper with a ragged edge. Write the same six numbers on that corner and keep it. Mail the rest of the paper with the information to Somebody Knows, Hollywood, California. You need tell no one what you have done. Mail your letter to Somebody Knows, Hollywood, California. And if the information you've supplied leads to the arrest and conviction of the killer of Joseph P. Bohannock, we'll announce your signature number on this program. Then, if you don't want your name to be known, go to your lawyer, doctor, or priest, minister, or rabbi. Have him present the torn corner of the paper to any CBS station. In this way, you do not need to appear in person. If the torn corner matches the original paper containing the information, the $5,000 reward will be yours. Remember, you, whoever you are, you whose name need never be known, may win a reward of $5,000. Next week, at the same time, we'll present another true case history of unsolved murder. It's homicide file number 49-104 from the records of the state's attorney's office in Cook County, Illinois. The unsolved murder of Frank J. Christensen. You out there, you who have murdered in cold blood and think you've gotten away with it, listen, you cannot escape. There is no perfect crime. Remember, you are not unknown. Somebody knows. by Sidney Marshall from information in the files of the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania Police Department. Research was by Maurice Zim. Music was composed and played by Milton Charles. Somebody Knows is a James L. Sapir production in association with CBS by arrangement with the Chicago Sun-Times and is based on a copyright owned by W.L. Finsap. It was narrated and directed by Jack Johnstone. In order to be eligible for the reward, letters containing actual authentic information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer or killers of Joseph P. Bohannock must be addressed to Somebody Knows Hollywood, California, and must be postmarked not later than midnight, August 9, 1950. Arrest of the guilty person or persons must occur within 90 days of that date, and conviction must be within one year of tonight's broadcast. If more than one person gives the information leading to conviction, our judges will divide the $5,000 reward among them in proportion to the importance the judges attach to the facts supplied. And in this, the decision of our judges will be final. Until next Thursday at the same time, this is Frank Goss saying good night. And remember, somebody knows. Most cameramen are content to take pictures and let it go at that. But not Casey. When he snaps a picture, he also sees to it that the law snaps the handcuffs on the man he's photographing. Because Casey is the famous CBS crime photographer, who is both cameraman and detective, Casey will be dealing with the Lorelei killer in just a moment, over most of these same CBS stations. So stay tuned. This is CBS, where you hear Arthur Godfrey every day, the Columbia Broadcasting System.